I think it must have something to do with the fact that it's the start of the school year and there's just always a lot of transition this time of year that I forget how many just awesome feasts we have right at the beginning of August. Like, you know, last week we got to really focus on the transfiguration. In two days, we have the solemnity of the assumption of our Blessed Mother into heaven. It's a holy day of obligation. It's coming right up. It's going to be great. And this past week, though, one that it's kind of easy to move right on through, but the church sort of lets us know that this is a big, important feast day in a lot of ways. And one of those in particular is, you know how every Sunday... I use Eucharistic Prayer 1. It's kind of like just the, the routine that I've picked, the way that I like to do things. Because I feel like on Sunday, we should use our Sunday best. And then during the week, I usually use Eucharistic Prayer 3. A little bit shorter, and in that one, you can insert a saint. But with Eucharistic Prayer 1, which is also called the Roman Canon, you get these two lists of saints. Going back to the earliest days of the church, most of them are martyrs. And one of them, that we just kind of like fly by every Sunday... His feast was on Thursday, and that's St. Lawrence. And if you don't know a lot about him, he's an amazing saint from early on in church history. He died in the year 258. Now, Lawrence was one of the seven deacons of the Church of Rome. Obviously, it's where the Pope is. And then back on Monday, this past Monday, we had the feast day of Pope St. Sixtus II, by the way, is an awesome name. I hope someday we have a Pope Sixtus VII, which would be kind of cool too. Anyway, I digress. So, Pope Sixtus II was the Holy Father. He's celebrating Mass with several of his companions. And at the time, the Roman Emperor Valerian decided to like, go on in a full-front attack on the church to start up this persecution. Has Pope Sixtus II and his companions arrested? And as they're being hauled off to be killed... Deacon Lawrence yells out, what about your Deacon Lawrence? And Pope Sixtus says to him, don't worry, you're going to follow me in three days. Now, Deacon Lawrence, his whole job was taking care of the poor of Rome. And he took Pope Sixtus II very literally. So when he hears, I'm going to follow you in three days, he started liquidating everything that the church owned to just go ahead and start distributing that to the poor, the lame, the sick, the orphans. And the Roman prefect hears about this. And so he summons to have Lauren brought to him and to bring all of the treasure of the church. Lauren says, okay, I'll be there in a couple days. So three days later, he comes with the treasure of the church, meaning he lines up all of the sick, those who can't walk, the blind, the orphan, the widowed, and says, here's the treasure of the church. Now, believe it or not, the prefect of Rome was not amused. He did not think this was a great thing at all. He did not consider the poor of Rome to be the treasure. And so, feeling himself slighted, he said he would kill Lawrence inch by inch. And just by the way, when you think, man, things have really gotten bad, they've always been bad. So the prefect sentenced him to death by grilling on a gridiron. Like, that's just gross, right? But I will tell you, a lot of people that celebrate August 10th, the Feast of St. Lawrence, they have a barbecue. Anyway, once again, I digress. So in the midst of literally being grilled, St. Lawrence says to his executioner, you can turn me over now, I'm done on this side. Which is incredible, right? To still have humor in the midst of that, right? I'm just so blown away by Lawrence. There's a reason why the church inserts him into the Eucharistic prayer. We hear his name all of the time. We kind of fly right by him. That guy is a hero of the church. 
in the midst of the storms of persecution, there he is, right? The prefect says, bring me your treasure. Here's the treasure, the poor of the church. He says, fine, I'll grill you. Fine, I'm done on this side, right? Like, it just is back and forth. And yet, he's strong to the very end. And it's so beautiful. In the face of it all, he knows what the real is. And that's the love of our Lord. And you can see that in the gospel. And of course, it's mysterious in the way that it all gets unfolded. And in the way that our Lord basically puts us to the test, the way that he allows us to enter into the battle, right? Like Lawrence isn't just like plucked out of the church in 258. No, he goes through it. He goes to bat with the Roman Empire. But I would just point out, where's the Roman Empire today, right? We don't really talk about that prefect much. We mention Lawrence every Sunday when we have Mass. It's an incredible thing to think about. But our Lord, his timing is not quite like our timing, right? You look at this gospel today, and we know it well about Jesus walking on the water. But to look at the context, to look at what he's going through, and then what he puts the disciples through is really instructive. So where we are, and I know last week could kind of throw us off a little bit because we kind of took a pause from the regular unfolding of the readings to spend a little bit of time in the transfiguration, which meant we jumped ahead to chapter 17. Now we're back into chapter 14. And just to give you an idea of where we are, we had all those weeks in chapter 13 of all the different parables, right? And then after that, Jesus goes back to his hometown and everybody's like, Where do you get all this? Like, we know his mom and dad. Like, what is going on? And Jesus says, a prophet's welcome everywhere except for in his hometown. And he can't do a whole lot of miracles there because of their lack of faith. And then immediately we move into chapter 14. You get the whole scene of John the Baptist challenging Herod. Herod having John the Baptist put to death. And then the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and tell him what happened. And what does Jesus do? He draws aside to go pray. But as he goes to do that, the crowds get there ahead of him of where he's going to be alone. And when he gets off the boat and looks out at the crowds, it says that his heart was moved with pity for them. So as he's going to pray, they come to him and the disciples want him to send them away because it's a deserted place because it's time for them to eat. And he says, well, give them some food yourself. We don't have any food, just five barley loaves and two fish. So what does our Lord do? He looks up to heaven, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he distributes it, and then 5,000 are fed. And then that's where we pick up today, after he had fed the people. What does he do? Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and proceed him to the other side. So think about that. That he he is the one who put them in the boats. He's the second person in the Most Holy Trinity. He's fully human, fully divine. He knows the weather patterns, right? He knows what's about to happen. And yet he sends them off He dismisses the crowds, goes up the mountain by himself to pray. And don't forget that either. Second verse in the Most Holy Trinity takes the time to pray. And then it says, when it was evening, he was there alone. So he sent the disciples off in the boats, basically in the afternoon, because then we get that it's the evening. Then we hear about the winds against them. They've got all these storms. And Jesus doesn't come to them till when? The fourth watch of the night. So he sent them off in the afternoon. He's not getting to them until like four or six o'clock in the morning, somewhere in there. It's just before sunrise. It's like the darkest time of the night, and he took a while to go. Now, I will tell you in reading this, it kind of reminds me of 
when Lazarus died, and Jesus takes four days to finally go and see him. Now, I said that, I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but let's be honest, like his timing is mysterious. I, my, my sister and her seven kids were just here. They took off this morning at 5 a.m. God bless them. That's not easy, right? So they're on the road right now back to Illinois. I got to spend the last several days with seven of my nieces and nephews. It was amazing. But I will tell you, like, as their uncle, especially as the ones that are, like, moving into middle school, I just want to, like, hold them and save them from the pains of middle school, right? Like, I don't want them to have to go through the stuff I had to go through. It's like, ah, if only I could save you from this. But they can't go, like, they can't grow up and become who they're called to be unless they continue on in the mix of things, right? I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to be there with them. But, you know, in some ways, I'd like to just remove all that. Notice, Jesus is the one who puts them in the boat, sends them into the midst of the storm. They're in the mix of that. But here's the other beautiful thing. When he comes, he's in the mix of it too. He's walking on the waters. It's not like he's like, oh, guys, I don't want to get my feet wet. Like, I'm just staying on the shore here. No, he is in the mix of all of it. And look what happens. The storm is raging through all this. You know, they see Jesus. They're terrified. He says, take courage. Don't be afraid. Ego me, which is the same thing that God said from the burning bush. I am. It is me. And what happens? Peter does some amazing things as the storm rages. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And I love Jesus' commandment. Come, right? He says the same thing to us. The storm is raging all around us all the time. He wants us to come out in the mix of the battle. He wants us to get out there and use the gifts, the virtues, the talents we have, even in the midst of the storm. And notice, he doesn't just say, okay, Peter, you're out here now. Storm's gone. No, storm continues to rage. But look at this. He actually walks on water a little bit. It's incredible. And what, what draws him away? Notice it's the wind, the thing you can't actually see. He's seeing Jesus on the water, can't see the wind, but it's the wind that scares him, and he starts to sink. But he does the right thing. Lord, save me. And notice this word, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And my friends, it's easy to forget this, but all of this, the storm is still raging. As our Lord says to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The storm didn't stop. It's still going. It doesn't stop until this line. After they got into the boat, the wind died down. So this whole time, it's just raging around them. Peter does some amazing things. Peter starts to sink. Our Lord is in the mix of it all. And then they get into the boat. And whenever we hear about the boats, it's good to think about the church, the bark of Peter. You know, the threefold mission of the church. We've got the church militant. That's us. The church suffering. Those in purgatory. The church triumphant. Those in heaven. And what happens after they got into the boat? Not just Jesus, not just Peter, but them together. And the beautiful thing about that is, you think about the example of Lawrence. He's in the midst of the storm of the Roman Empire, which now is no more than wind that has already blown its hardest, and now it's gone. But Jesus Christ and his church continue through the ages. And when we keep our eyes fixed on him, we can have, you know, the courage, the strength, the brass to stand up there and say, here's our treasure, turn me over, I'm done on this side. And what happens? They get into the boats, warrants with Jesus, and they give us the strength to keep going. What does all this show us? There will be storms. It's not a surprise. They've been raging forever. 
But the good news for us is God gets into the storm with us. One of the best things I read this week having to do with all this is we got to stop telling God how strong the storm is and start telling the storm how strong God is, right? That our Lord is with us in the mix of it all. He gives us the chance to be in the battle, but as long as we keep, keep focused on him, as long as we imitate him, right? Praying, spending time with him. Notice, as I said, at the beginning of this chapter, his cousin gets killed for standing up for marriage. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't like gather to the disciples, like rush the court and throw out Herod. No, he goes to pray. And that's what we're called to do too. The storms will throw their worst at us. It's going to continue to happen. We can't be surprised. And in God's provident will, he allows it. But look at the storms in 258 with St. Lawrence. The church is barely 200 years old. He just saw the Pope killed, and he still is strong to say, turn me over, I'm done on this side. Where does that confidence come from? From knowing that our Lord is in the mix with us. The same is true to this very day. Yes, the storms rage, the winds blow, but eventually they blow out. But our Lord continues to be right there with us. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And don't spend all your time telling him how strong the storm is. But keep telling those storms how strong the love of Christ is. Praise be Jesus Christ.